Again, we are in Romans uh, 1 this morning, and Paul writes out, uh, starts out and says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised before him through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him and for his namesake we receive grace and apostleship to call people from among the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. And you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the last time we were together we talked about uh, literally the, uh, the first verse uh, and you know, Paul being a, being a servant. And we talked about what it meant to, to choose to be a servant, to, to be a doulos, to, to say I want to be your servant if you will take care of me. And that agreement that happens. It's not like somebody's gone and, and trapped in the middle of war or whatever and they just got, you know, pulled into servanthood or something. This is a person who chooses to be that and, and how it was really looked down upon, especially in Roman society. And Paul was writing to the Romans. But he was also called to be an apostle, someone who chose to be a servant of whom? Christ Jesus, who was called to be an apostle. Someone sent with authority. They have the stamp. When, we, when our ambassador goes, to, you know, from the United States, goes to another country, he has the authority of the president when, he ta- when he's in his office and he's talking about certain things. And he also talked about being a set apart for God. And we use the example of each one of us is a tool. And, you know, I've been called a tool a few, a few times. But, uh, you know, each one of us has a specialty. And you have special tools for certain things. And, and you know, we, we talked about the, the bending of the pipes. In fact, I, I used that pipe bender yesterday in the, in, over there in the little chapel as we're getting that ready and uh, for the next step and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, a specialty tool. And each one of us has certain gifts that God can use in certain places. We are a tool. The one sentence we see, uh, in this one sentence, we see Paul's purpose in life. A willing messenger to give the good news from God and about God. It is that good news that the devil doesn't want people to know. It's that good news that the devil doesn't want you to know. Paul has no other purpose in life. His whole purpose is to go out and saturate the, 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 the marketplace, the political and spiritual marketplace, and tell people the good news about Christ. It will take in many different forms as, as he does this. He will write many letters that have, that have lasted 2,000 years. He will travel the known world, uh, many, you know, mult, multiple missionary journeys to, to Europe and different places. And he has a simple, simple message. Now, what a concept this is. To be able to narrow our life's goal down, our life's mission for God down to one sentence or a couple of sentences. Have you ever thought about that? What is your goal? What is your purpose? Can you distinctly say that? Could you succinctly say that? 
This is my goal. This is my purpose in life. A simple and meaningful mission that has great lasting effect. See, we need to start thinking a little differently. Paul didn't walk around and introduce himself as, Hi, I'm Paul from Tarshish. I'm a tent maker. See, Paul for years worked as a tent maker. In fact, that's how he supported himself in ministry. That was his earthly job. He, you know, his earthly career was making tents. It supported him for many years. And for some reason, our identity is wrapped around our job, isn't it? When somebody comes to you and talks to you and introduces, well, what do you do? They're talking about what kind of job can, you know, do you do in life? That way I can kind of put you in whatever category I think that job fits in. You see what I'm saying? But there's life purpose beyond our particular job. There's a purpose in life that goes beyond the menial things of life. Especially for those who don't really open up the Bible. Or for, or, you know, or, or for those who, who do, but, but you know, they, they don't try to understand the word of God. There's a purpose, and we need to understand these things to go beyond just our earthly job. Now, Paul is huge in the Christian world. For 66 generations since Paul died, he has been affecting Christians, even down to this generation. There's not that many people who have had that kind of effect on this world. I mean, they're still naming churches after this guy. And here today, we're reading his words. We need to come to a level of understanding that Paul, the Apostle Paul, that he is an apostle. But we also need to understand that he's just a regular guy who had to deal with the mundane things of of life. There's periods of time when he didn't know where to go. He didn't know what to do. His plan was to do this, but but something was holding him back. Or, or, you know, he wanted to do something. God said, no, 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 Paul, I don't want you to do that. And Paul's just like pulling his hair out. I don't understand. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever said, Lord, I don't understand? Even the Apostle Paul didn't understand sometimes. We don't get all the boring details. We don't get, well, where do you want to eat? I don't know. Where do you want to eat? I don't know. How about Mexican? Or for them, it would be, how about Greek? Or how about Roman? You know, I mean, however they, you know, we don't get the boring details. And unfortunately, reality TV has really introduced us to the boring details. This generation just, just sucks them up and loves them. I don't know why, but for some reason, you know, we go along and we want to know about the same 7 to 10 movie stars. I mean, how much more do you need to know about the Kardashians' love lives? I mean, seriously, you know? I mean, there's, there's so much better things that we could spend our time on than, than you know, but, but for some reason we want to know what dress Bruce Jenner is going to wear today. <laughs> right? I mean, there was a big article about how this, this young lady going to prom just pulled off wearing one of, one of Bruce Jenner, or whatever Bruce Jenner's name is now, but, you know, just really pulled it off and looked the part of wearing the same dress that, that he wore. I mean, I mean, it was big news. National news. Luckily, the Bible writers didn't write in all the little boring details, and we need to realize that, that he was not always the Apostle Paul. He was a guy like you and I, and over time, the Lord slowly changed who he was. 
And man, I wish that would happen quicker, don't you? Man, I wish I could be more like Christ a lot quicker than what I'm going through. You know what I'm saying? He was a guy. We don't know how the, you know, how Paul became an apostle. And if we don't know that, what I'm saying is that if we didn't know, if we didn't pay attention, if we didn't read the Bible and understand how Paul became an apostle, we could disagree and ignore the Apostle Paul in chapters 2 and 3. Especially when he becomes politically incorrect and controversial. I mean, we might want to take the chance to get to know him so that he has a chance to teach us when we start thinking about things of like homosexuality, which is always one of the things we talk about. But did you know homosexuality and coveting are in the same sentence when it comes to talking about sin? Hmm. We don't really lift coveting up as a huge sin, do we? Yet, many of us covet over and over. Instead of going... I'm not sure if I agree. You know, for some reason, we base our agreement for Americans, our right or wrong meter, on how I feel about the subject. How do I personally feel about the subject instead of how does God, how does the Holy Scriptures, how does the Bible feel about that subject? It's based on how I feel. Or somebody we really, 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 really like and how they feel. Or their situation. Because we wouldn't want to really offend anybody. This is a very interesting thing. This is why our goal is to get to know the Bible. So when we get into situations like, well, do I move in with my boyfriend or girlfriend? We make the biblically correct decision. And not just go, eh, and just do whatever we want to do based on how we feel. Now, 66 generations ago, things were a little different. They didn't have Costco. They didn't have flat screen TVs. They couldn't imagine a car going 80 miles per hour down the freeway in the fast lane with somebody riding on your back bumper. I mean, back then, you could cover 10 to 12 miles a day, and that was a good day. And as holy as Paul's words are for us, he was still a guy who had real struggles, real relationships, people that he missed, people who who wouldn't miss him once he left town. I don't know if we've ever had a friendship like that, that either you're the one leaving and people don't mind you leaving, or, or, uh, or, or you're the one that's left and you're like, oh, I'm glad I'm gone from that friendship or that, those relationships. He even had people who wanted to kill him. Hopefully you don't have any friends that want to kill you. It's usually your friends that want to kill you, right? Friends that become enemies. So later on when we read all things, God, all, all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Instead of saying it so fast and going, yeah, 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 we slow down and we say, wow. Paul is really talking about the life experiences that he went through and is going through. Now, when he writes this in A.D. 58, he knows some things. He knows that that God will work things together for the good. Sometimes, even when we don't deserve it. 
Have you ever been blessed by God when you didn't deserve it? I mean, there's times, sometimes when I bless my kid, and he certainly doesn't deserve it. You know what I'm saying? And God does the same thing for us. By, by Romans chapter 1, Paul is writing in A.D. 58. And Paul's about 58 years old at this point. He was born around 0 or 1 A.D., within a few years of when Christ was, was born. We think Christ was born as, it was actually 4 B.C., uh, not 0 A.D., uh, that may confuse some of you. Come have a conversation with me, but uh, we think Christ is born around four, uh, between 4 and 6 B.C., but around the same time, Paul was born, within a few years, but they did not grow up together. They did not know each other. Paul grew up in Tarshish, which was you know, a different country, long ways from, from Bethlehem and Caesarea and, and uh, you know, Capernaum and, and Nazareth. Paul grew up in Asia Minor, which was, was up north, Turkey, kind of north and over, northwest. Uh, Tarsus was the capital of Cilicia on the banks of the river, uh, river uh, Sidnus, which could take you all the way to the sea, which we think, oh, no big deal. They had a 12-mile ship channel and an artificial port in the city. That was huge. I mean... This would be like modern-day Fresno having a port. I mean, think about that. The Houston Ship Channel, they took a little river and widened it all out, and ships come right into Houston from Galveston, which is about 22 miles away. Huge deal. It, it, it makes a place like that, uh, it guarantees the city richness if you have something like that. Twelve miles was a huge thing back then. You didn't have cars that go back and forth. That's like a day's journey. They had great universities there that rivaled, rivaled uh, Athens. And, and Paul was a city guy. We, we think of these Bible guys as you know, wearing long robes, you know, because every Middle Eastern wears long robes, right? I mean, long robes and, and you know, either walk along with a donkey or a camel or, or have sheep all running around. Saul was completely different from that. He was not a fisherman. He wasn't like many of the disciples, a fisherman or a farmer or, you know, he was a city guy. He was born and raised in the city. And I kind of understand that. You know, sometimes, you know, people, Tulare uh, was a place that I just drove through a few times as I went back to Houston. You know what I'm saying? Uh, and went down south. I, I never really knew that Tulare was here. I grew up in a city of four million people. I moved to the Bay Area, which has, you know, millions of people up there in, in the extended area and stuff. So I kind of understand uh, that a little bit. But, you know, Paul, he, he likes all these different types of food and all these different types of people. My wife will go eat anything, okay? You want to eat some weird restaurant food, take her, okay? She understood Paul in this manner. I mean, Paul likes city life. He's highly educated. He knows multiple languages. And Americans, we're, we're kind of done a, a, had a disservice. We were like, okay, you need to learn a language you know, to graduate or something like that. I don't, do they still have that in high school now? You have to do a second language? See, my generation, I, it came in right after me, so I didn't even have to have a, a second language going into high school. Uh, I finally took Greek in college, uh, if you want to call that a second language. It was a biblical language. It's not like I could practically use it um, in conversation, though it was fun in certain classes with you know, the other guys in the class. We could talk back and forth in Greek, and no one would know what we were talking about, you know. But, uh, you know, Paul knew multiple languages. 
His father had been granted a, a citus Romanus, which means citizen of Rome. And we think, oh, great, this is huge. Think about being a citizen of the United States. We have people, I mean, going across deserts. We have people swimming rivers, risking their lives to get to America for the American dream. But they want citizenship here, right? Right? Whether you agree with it or not, you know, okay, let's not get into the politics. They want that, right? I mean, for a Middle Eastern person to get across the, the Mediterranean Sea and into Greece, and once they can get to Greece, then they can get to Italy, and once they get to Italy, they can travel to England, and once they get to England, I mean, they're set. It's almost like citizenship. It's a big deal. You could only get citizenship if you'd done something huge for Rome or you gave him a lot of money. We don't know how he got his citizenship. We do know it's passed down from generation to, to generation. So my point is, he was not a dumb hick. You know, a lot of times we look at the, the disciples and we go, uh, you know, Peter, okay, he's a dumb hick, you know. Uh. You know, that's kind of how we think of him sometimes, not always. Paul was not like that. Now Saul, you'll hear me say Saul or Paul, Saul was his Hebrew name, and Paul was his Roman name. How many of you have two different names? Anyone? Gary raises his hand. A few other people? Yeah? I mean, growing up, I knew my dad as dad, of course, but I knew him as Arliss. His name was Arliss. I go to Oklahoma, and they called him Ray. I'm like, who's Ray? That's Arliss. Or they call him Arliss Ray. You know, two different names. Different, that's how Saul was. Saul's dad was a, was a strict Jewish man. His mom we don't know much about, but I'm going to, you know, you know, other than she raised a straight-laced kid, so I'm going to say she was a homeschooler, you know? Uh, Paul called his childhood righteous and blameless. And you don't have a righteous and blameless uh, childhood unless your mom's looking over your shoulder. You know what I'm saying? At some point, it was decided to send Paul to school in Jerusalem when he became an adult. So at 13 years old, an adult, 13 years old, that's when you were considered an adult in Jewish culture, he answered for his own decisions. He was sent to Jerusalem to study under uh, Gamaliel's, and I can't ever say that right. Um, but, you know, he, maybe by himself, maybe with family, we know he had a sister that lived in Jerusalem. We know he had a nephew in Jerusalem also. But his dad got him into the most exclusive school, uh, school uh, Gamaliel's Seminary. This is huge. I mean, the hope that his family would have would be that Paul would rise to the ranks of the Pharisees. And maybe, I mean, may, maybe Paul would get to a point where he could join the Sanhedrin. This is like the Supreme Court. They had 71 leaders. 70 and the high priest was added in there. So 71 leaders of the Jewish world. It's like their Supreme Court. They, they decided everything. And if they played their cards right. Now we know that Paul actually reached that. Uh, and we'll talk about that later. But they had high hopes for Saul. Now sometime in his training he goes back to Tarshish. And he learns a trade, like all rabbis did. They would learn how to work, and everyone had a trade. And they would make these, and they had all these black goats around their area and, and, and lived around there. And they would make this thick wool out of them and uh, this coarse material. And they would use it as waterproofing for tents 
And here's a, a picture of a modern day um, Bedouin tent that's made out of the same material as back then. They're still doing this in this area. And these Bedouins would, uh, you know, they've done this. They've traveled around for thousands of years. And, and, and today you'll see the exact tents. And you, what's funny is you'll see trucks. And I, I should have got a picture of one of those, but I didn't. I actually have some pictures of, of them when we went to Israel. But they weren't, like, really clear, you know, because we're traveling in a bus uh, down the freeway. But uh, you'll see satellite dishes. You'll see trucks. You'll see many of other things out behind these tents. And they pack them all up with their camels and everything else, and they travel from area to area around the Middle East. There's still Bedouins today. But sometime around A.D. 32, Saul returns to Jerusalem. Right after the death, burial, and resurrection and ascension of Christ, sometime after Pentecost, uh, Pentecost, but he's not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, he's a, you know, a rising star in the Pharisaic world. He is out there persecuting Christians. He's out there teaching Jewishness. He saw the teachings of Jesus as a, as a threat to the Jewish way of living. Up to this point, he'd never met Jesus, and it was a threat. So he volunteered to head, be the head guy of persecuting all the Jews. The Jews, I mean, something happened at Pentecost, and if you go read Acts, we know what. And, you know, 50 days after Christ rose from the grave, and the Christians were converting Jews right and left. And the Holy Spirit was so active. So Paul decided, or Saul at this point decided, something had to be done. Something had to be done. At his conversion, Saul left the name Saul in the background. And we'll talk about that. But Saul leads the opposition against the likes of Stephen. And we all know of Stephen from the book of Acts, where he was literally stoned to death. Saul was standing there at this execution. He was happy about it. He was a black and white type of guy. He would not have lost any sleep over it at all. But Stephen, Stephen didn't die like a normal man. He, he, you know, he, a normal man, I mean, if somebody was trying to stone me, you believe me, I'm going to fight back. You know what I'm saying? But man, Stephen, he knelt down and he just started praying. Father, forgive them. I see Jesus. Lord, take my spirit. I mean, they were killing a really good guy. And Saul handled it okay, yet affected him more than we could ever imagine. Because years later, he would write down the words of Stephen. This is what he said. So you know it affected him. You know he remembered him. So legally, they tried to silence the, the, the Jesus freaks. <laughs> they tried to silence the, the followers of the way. This didn't work. So Saul started leading house-to-house invasions. It's like going into a house church and there was service going on. They would drag them out of the church, out of the home. They would beat them, send them to jail, and some of them never came back. They just disappeared, much like in China today or Iran or Iraq or Syria, or Jordan, or Libya, or Sudan, or, or Turkey, or United Emirates, or Ethiopia, or Pakistan, or even India, or Niger, or Egypt, or Afghanistan, Algeria, Nigeria, Turkmenistan, Oman, Yemen, Somalia, 
Uganda, Mali, Tunisia. All these countries are doing the same thing today in the name of Allah. Hmm. Much like the Jews were doing it in the name of God. And they were wrong. Now, what happens, you know, is that during this persecution, the flame of Christianity kept growing and growing. But they were driving the Jews away from Jerusalem. Many of them went to the port of Caesarea and out into the world. And many went to Damascus the other way and to other places. And the apostles stayed in Jerusalem for a while. So the apostle Paul gets wind that the spread of what they called the way, or the followers of Jesus Christ, or just the followers... That there was this big group in Damascus. So Paul gets permission to go get a group together and go after this group to hunt them down. They were literally on what's called the Roman road, about 130 miles of it. And parts of it are still there today. And on the way, they're almost to Damascus, coming off the slopes of Mount Hermon. When all of a sudden, a, a blinding light hits the traveling party. The Apostle Paul, he falls down to the ground and he's stunned. And he's just been hit by, by a UFO. You know what I'm saying? But a real one. Something big and bright just stopped him. Saul hears his voice and, and others can't make out what's being said. They just hear something but they don't know what's going on. And, and Paul sees a person and, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. Only it's not the Sunday school Jesus. No. It is the mean Lord Jesus Christ in a sense. Now... You can take it however you want to take it there. I'm not really saying the Lord is mean. But it's the angry Lord Jesus Christ. This is who Saul gets to meet. He says, Saul, Saul, yo, man, why? Why are you persecuting me? Saul asks, why are you, Lord, or who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. You know, is it, in one of the scriptures it says, is it hard to kick against the, the goads? I think it's in the King James, but not the NIV. You know, is it hard to, to keep doing this after I keep trying to stop you over and over? Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. I mean, they, they help Paul up. They don't know what's going on. They know Paul's a, a totally broken man. He can't see. He's got all of a sudden these new scales over his eyes like they've never seen before. He doesn't eat and drink for three days. They take him into Damascus and lay him down on a, uh, on a bed at some guy's house and, you know, on, a, on a, a street named Straight Street, which is still there, by the way, in Damascus. The street's still there. Then he just lays there. This is their fearless leader. This is the guy who's persecuting the Jews. This is the guy who God knocks down, just lying there for three, day, three days. And the Lord tells a guy named Ananias, go find Saul. You might have heard of him. And he's like, well, no, I'm not going. He goes, yes, you are. You're going. You need to welcome him and you need to baptize him. <laughs> welcome? What do you mean? You're going to go, Ananias. So Ananias says, well... I guess I know what I'm doing today. And in fact, it picks up in Acts 9, uh, verse 17 there. Then Ananias went into the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul. I'm sure that almost choked out of his mouth too. 
Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me to has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. So Saul's doing what Saul always did when he got to a new town. He went into the synagogue. The problem is he's supposed to be on the other team. It goes on in verse 21, All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. Now you could imagine how lonely Paul would be at this point. The guys he traveled with to Damascus, they're kind of upset with him, wouldn't you think? They're probably thinking, I'm not sta- no, I'm not being associated with this. The Christians in Damascus, they're probably a little weary of him, Right? I mean, this would be, I mean, okay, again, take politics out of it, but let me bring politics in. This would be like Barack Obama coming in saying, I'm now a conservative Republican. We'd be a little weary, wouldn't we? You know, people who are conservative would be leery of that. Well, the same thing as Saul coming in and saying, I'm not persecuting Christians anymore. In fact, I believe in Jesus Christ. That's how confusing it would be for them. Can you imagine some of the Christians, oh yeah, by the way, it's all good, Saul. I forgive you for killing my aunt in Jerusalem. No big deal. I mean, it'd be a little hard, wouldn't it? I mean, you walk into church, you look across the auditorium, you look at your friend or spouse and you go, they are here. And your spouse knows exactly what they mean. You mean, you mean they're here? Shoot. Mm. Paul is secretly taken out of the city because they had planned to kill him. And everybody, you know, wants to kill him. He goes to Jerusalem to teach and preach. And the Jews had the same reaction. They wanted to kill him there. So he goes to Tarsus and then heads out into the wilderness of Arabia by himself to study the scriptures. Because it's the same scriptures that he studied over and over his whole life. And all of a sudden, it's, it's a new way of thinking for him. His eyes have literally been opened. And he's trying to figure things out. He's reading the scriptures in a new light, a new meaning, and he ends up in the church of Antioch. He goes, you know, a friend of his says, what are you doing here? And, and basically brings him on staff at the church of Antioch, his friend Barnabas. And in Antioch, the, the, there's word that the Christians, uh, the, the word Christians actually comes about in, the, in Antioch. The word Christian means little Christ, a very negative term, you know, little, little Christ. You know, almost today, it's almost turned back into a negative thing, you know? The word, oh, you're a Christian? How can you believe that? (laughs) Come on, you're, seriously, you're, you're, you're a Christian? Oh, come on, that's a fairy tale. Oh, that's a crutch you need to lean on, right? I know, that's it, that's a crutch. That's how the world thinks about it. They look at it as a cult or an odd way to live. They use the word in a very derogatory way. Like back then, here comes a little Christ. 
So there he is in Antioch, and they start to send out teachers. And Paul and Barnabas start these missionary journey, journeys, and everywhere they went, they went to the Jew first, then you know to the synagogue, and then they went out to the Gentiles. And every place was a little different. Some were totally open to him and his teachings and, and all that, and some were very close to him. But it's in uh, Corinth, the second time that he writes to the Romans. And Paul lives there another 10 years or so. So Paul knows, I mean, so, so I mean, so knowing who Paul is helps us understand he's writing, he's writing more than just to one people. He's, he's writing, he, he talks about every religious person on every economic level. He's not just writing to the church in Rome. I mean, he's writing to, to everybody. He's not just writing to the church in Philippians. He's writing to all these different people across economic status, rich and poor, both the Jew and the Greek, the African and the Egyptian, the male and female, the children, which were ignored pretty much. He's writing to the slave and the free. And many people from around the world become friends with Paul. His message is about the Lord Jesus Christ, and it has changed their life. It is the good news. So now Paul is writing to Rome. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture. He will now show them how hundreds of years before Christ, the prophets were talking about Christ. See, Paul knew the Scriptures, and he went out and restudied them in a new light, new understanding. Even thousands of years, you know, beforehand, they were writing about Christ. And Paul is saying, as a boy, in this verse, you know, the gospel he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures, he's saying, I studied these Scriptures as a boy, and even I missed it. I mean, Genesis 3, Moses said the Messiah was coming. That a Savior would be offered in sacrifice on the same mountain that Abraham offered up Isaac. Saul is going, I, you know, I studied that for years, and I miss the truth. I studied King David. I studied all his writings. And according to King David, it says the Messiah's hand, hands and feet would be pierced. I should have been looking for a Messiah that, that his hands and feet were pierced. And yet, I missed it. I missed what Isaiah said about the Messiah being born of a virgin. I mean, all he had to do was walk around and go, okay, now what was... was was he born of a virgin? And people would say, well, yes, that's what we understand. And, and they would talk about it. All you had to do was ask. But he didn't. It was said that he would live as an adult around Capernaum. That Jesus would be. Well, that narrows it, you know, narrows it down a bit. Yet, for Paul, he didn't ever inquire about that. Isaiah 35 said he would be healing people. Well, I didn't even ask. But I was taught as a Jewish boy to hate Gentiles. It also said that the Messiah would be despised and rejected. And I should have looked, yet I didn't. It's not as Paul, you know, it's not as if Paul didn't know the Bible. He was just blinded to it. 
Saul was a very religious guy. And I can tell you one thing. I know some very religious people who are lost completely. Who are lost. They're religious, but they don't know Jesus. We look at them as if they got it all together. That's the Apostle Paul before he became the Apostle Paul. And the Lord had to knock him over to get his attention. He didn't quote scripture at him. He just said, what are you doing? And imagine Paul's first words, well, why, why? You want to fight about it? Why do you keep, you know, keep kicking the goats? I'll show you what happens. And basically, Jesus takes a two-by-four up to the side of his head. You know what I'm saying? You know, this is the difference between somebody who's grown up in church and somebody who, you know, somebody who knows better versus someone who's new to the whole thing. And I've talked about this before. You know, you don't go, to, uh, you don't go at a person uh, with the Bible screaming that they should be married if they've never been to church and, you know, boyfriend and girlfriend are living together, come to church, and they've never been in the church. You don't go beat them over the head with the Bible. That, that will surely get them in the church, right? No. But, yeah, I mean, you've got to love them into it. But an old friend texted me this past week. He's moving in with his girlfriend. Oh, well, I found out he was moving in with his girlfriend, so I texted him. And I took a two-by-four up, you know, up to the side of his head. Hey, I heard you're moving in with your girlfriend. Is that right? He waited a day and a half, texted back. I mean, I could have called him, but I just wanted to, I want the Holy Spirit just to eat away at him. You know what I'm saying? He texted back, Yes. I mean, and since he was under my ministry for a while, I, you know, sat under my teaching and stuff, I asked a simple question. Biblically correct? Question mark. He waited to get back to me. His response, I don't know how to answer that question. I texted back, yes, you do then. And you know the answer. And I didn't let him off the hook. I texted biblically wrong exclamation point you should be married if you're going to move in with her his response yes i know i'm not saying it's not thank you for your advice now i know what's going to happen he's going to move in with his girlfriend and he will struggle with that and the holy spirit will convict him with that and i will not let him off the hook we're still friends even though he's decided to go this direction Does that make sense? It's not like I go, we'll forget you. No. What kind of friend does that? No, I'm going to pick at them. I'm going to rag on them. And I'm going to do it all in the love of Jesus' name. But man, come on. He has lost his purpose in life. He used to talk about God. But he left God on the shelf and has decided to live without the purpose of God and make his own decisions. And we need to understand that there is a price for that. He grew up in church. He knows better, so I'm taking the two-by-four to his head. That's different from a person who comes into church, that's never been to church, and doesn't know the difference. Now, I have another friend who is highly involved in his church. 
For years he was looked upon as, as one of the leaders of the church, made decisions for the church, and all the time he was living in sin. Now we all have sin, right? Who doesn't have sin? Raise your hand. Okay, I better keep mine down. Okay, we all have sin. And we're taught, you know, the Word of God, we're taught not to judge, right? We, 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 no, no, we, no, we don't judge. We just gossip. Uh, I mean, we don't judge. No, we, we're taught to have discernment. We're taught to hold leaders accountable. We're taught to, to hold each other accountable, to judge. But we do judging on not the way we feel, but by the Word of God, right? And the judging is supposed to do what? Wag a finger in the face? Supposed to turn us back toward Christ. So we're taught to judge in that sense. But this man was having multiple affairs. Stepped away from leadership, from, you know, on his own terms. Never, never came and confessed. Never, you know, no one was the wiser, so he thought. Everyone kept saying, oh, bring this person back in leadership. Bring this person back in leadership. But the pastor of this church just felt like something was holding him back. Years later, the pastor finds out what was going on. You know what the pastor was amazed about? It's something I'm amazed about, too. We so easily and we so quickly fall into sin without thinking about the ramifications and then without repenting. All the while, everybody else thinks everything's rosy. Everything's rosy. When in reality, the person's not seeing God at all. This is Saul. Saul is in the middle of life of sin, and he doesn't realize it until he meets Jesus. Somehow in the middle of it all, Saul missed Zechariah eleven twelve that the Messiah would be betrayed by 30 pieces of silver. I mean, hello, Paul. Don't you get it? Not only that, that the 30 pieces of silver would be returned and they wouldn't accept it, yet it was used to buy a potter's field. This all narrows it down. All you had to do is go, hey, did anybody from the Sanhedrin, uh, yeah, oh wait, I'm on the Sanhedrin. Did we buy a potter's field? According to Daniel, the Messiah would come 483 days from the exact day from the decree to rebuild Jerusalem. That kind of narrows it down a little bit, right? But he still didn't open his eyes. And then Messiah would be killed before the destruction of the temple. Hmm. Narrows it down again. According to Micah, the Messiah would be born in a little town called Bethlehem. Come on, Paul, get out the Romans' books. You know, they keep good records. Paul had studied all the prophecies. He knew all the scriptures And he lived a life of sin because he missed it. You know what I'm concerned about? That there's people in this church and other churches around this world that come to church every week and yet they don't have a personal experience with the Lord Jesus Christ. They can't point to something and say, this is when I became a Christian. Now, you don't have to know the exact day and time. The only way I can remember that is go back to, you know, First Baptist Church, Deer Park, and look up the baptismal records and, and find out, okay, when did I accept, when did I walk down? The, I mean, uh, I know it was somewhere around fifth grade for me. It's not a sin not to know the exact day and time. But, it's, but to be able to point to something and say, this is when I turned my life around, this is when I started living for Jesus. 
when I was in high school, turn around and live for Jesus, or 23 years old, or 40 years old, you know, to be able to point to something in our lives and say the Holy Spirit came in and changed me. If the Apostle Paul could be the type of person that missed the beauty of Christ, then some of us could miss it as well. Christianity is not showing up to church. It's not talking about the scriptures and leaving. Christianity is a life change. When's the last time that the Holy Spirit, when's the last time that Christ came to you and asked you to change, to take something out of your life that is destroying your life or hurting your life and put something back in there that is better? And did you follow it? See, God talks to different people, you know, differently. Some, it's a still small voice. Some, it's a two by four upside the head that says, Alan, get over it. You're going the wrong direction. You see my point? And instead of fighting that, half the time that's what we do. We fight. Sometimes we need somebody to say, hey, when are you going to get your act together? How stubborn are you? Because I tell you, the more stubborn you are, the more God is going to put you through the ringer over and over and over to get your attention. That's what he did to Saul. He had to put him through a hard time to get his attention. And I'm sure he tried over and over, many, many times, many ways. I imagine the Holy Spirit going, Saul, are you really going to allow Stephen to be stoned death? Look at Stephen. Look at what he's doing. Are you really going to allow this to happen? And Saul allowing it to happen. Yet Christ turns him around. And Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture. See, Paul opened the Scriptures to many people who already knew it, and yet they hadn't been paying attention until he came along. It's not a new truth. If somebody comes to you and says, I have a new truth from the Word of God, no, 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 run. God's word is not filled with new truth. It's filled with old truth. Paul went back and said, this is old truth. Maybe something new to him, but it wasn't new truth. If it's a new thing, then it's not the truth. If only a few people have the newest, greatest, feel-good experience, and they're offering it to you, reject it. Reject them. It has, to f- it has to fit in the totality of the Scripture and be biblically sound. And that's what Paul's trying to teach. He went back and studied the Scriptures and said, this is biblically sound. And he's going to talk about many different areas. He's going to talk about the greatness of God. He's going to talk about the sin of man. He's going to talk about how we shouldn't try to get away with it. He's going to cover the gamut as we go through this. And it's going to be a great journey. Amen? But I tell you, the takeaway from today is if you're living in sin, turn away from that. Because I am amazed at how easily we are as Christians will go into sin because we think it feels good. We think it feels good. And we just ignore that it's sin. And God just, it breaks God's heart. Don't break God's heart. 
Let's stand and pray this morning. Lord, we pray that uh, as we live our lives, as we live our sinful lives, and we all have sin in our life, Lord, that you help take out some of that skin, uh, sin. We, we pray you use a scalpel, something nice and sharp, and it comes out easy. But Lord, if we're in the middle of sin, sometimes it takes a two by four, and we, we pray that you don't just leave that by the side. We pray, Lord, that when people approach us about our sin, that we don't automatically attack them. That we allow your spirit to use them to help direct our lives and turn our lives towards you. You want us to live godly lives, to be a great example to this world. What better example is to to stop sin, admit it, and turn around and, and start living a godly way. Lord, we pray for the families and friends and all those that are in in Florida, just everything that happened there, Lord. That somehow, some way, you use this to benefit the kingdom of God. We don't know how that would be, Lord. We pray that people would turn away from their sin and turn towards you. We pray that you allow us to combat evil in this world. We know it's going to get worse, Lord. And we ask for you to quickly come. And we pray for those that are go through difficult situations, that they would look for a Savior. Lord, I thank you for people like Saul and Paul, and that you turn their, their lives completely around, that there's hope for us in our life by their example. Now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord's face shine down upon you, and may he bless you in a way that you haven't experienced this week when you turn toward him. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.